We're going to look at the uh, first chapter of the book of Revelation. A few weeks ago, we looked at the last chapter and a half. So this is sort of bookending. I wanted to start with the last chapter just to see the, the glory that's coming in the Lord. Just It's a hope and a joy and a, just a radiant glory to, to see all that's going to happen. And now we're looking at the, the beginning of the book. And like everything like this where you start off, it's sort of necessary to give a background of what's happened and a scene that shows all the factors that are affecting what you read. <clears throat> Let's pray. Lord, we're quite aware that it's all about you and not about us. And um, when we forget it, Lord, you quickly bring it to our attention by showing how weak we are and how strong you are and how Lord, our thoughts are foolish and your thoughts are wise. Just pray that you would help us now to see you, Lord. And we want to see you as not the dead body that Bill spoke about, but we want to see you as the one whose eyes are like fire, whose hair is like wool, like snow, who walks among the lampstands who is the first and the last and the Savior of the world. So that's who you are, Lord, and that's who we want to see. So we ask you that you would just hold us close and lead us by your strong right hand to exalt your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Ambrose Bierce you may never have heard the name. He lived in the 1860s. He was a poet. He was a newspaper man. He was a satirist. Um, he wrote one book that was listed at the time or years later as one of the top 100 fiction books. And the book that he wrote was called The Devil's Dictionary. And he said in The Devil's Dictionary this following tongue-in-cheek definition. Revelation, noun, a famous book in which St. John the Divine, the, the Divine concealed all that he knew. The revealing is done by the common but the commentators who know nothing. So that's his definition of the book of Revelation. Most people who write and teach in the book of Revelation probably should take Bierce's words to heart so that not so as not to take their own opinions too seriously. Because if you read different commentators, you'll see that there are a wealth of opinions. 
a lot of Christians, many in fact, avoid the book of Revelation mainly because they think it's too close to being incomprehensible. And often they've heard strange interpretations from these people that have all their different opinions. They give an interpretation of all the bizarre imagery and they choose to retreat to more familiar passages in the New Testament or even the Old Testament. In fact, it's true that to start reading the book of Revelation is to step into a strange and a, an infinite world of angels, demons, lambs, lions, horses, and dragons. Seals are broken, trumpets are blown, and the contents of seven bowls are poured out on the earth. Two especially foreboding monsters appear on the scene. One coming out of the sea. (coughs) He has ten horns and seven heads. And the other rising from the earth with a lamb's horn and a dragon's voice. There's thunder. There's lightning. There's hail, fire, blood, and smoke. So these are the figures, these are the symbols that we see. And that's only part of the strange symbolism that comes. Oh, actually, it causes so many people to turn away. They just take one look at it, and it's overwhelming. And it's a great mistake to turn away because of what you see and what you can't understand. Because at the very beginning of the first chapter, we're told that those who read, who hear, and those who keep the things that are written in this prophecy are blessed. And we see in the last chapter of Revelation, the 22nd chapter, a repetition of that same phrase. And behold... I am coming quickly. Blessed is he, blessed is he who heeds the word of the prophecy of this book. So regardless of how uncomfortable the apocalyptic style, the genre, makes us feel, we're called to heed it and to heed the prophecy. Genre is a French word, as most of you know, that just means what style, what format. Is it fiction? Is it poetry? Is it science? What is it? And this apocalyptic genre is found in the Old Testament, of course, in the book of Daniel and a little bit in Zechariah. And it's found a whole lot in Jewish apocalyptic that started probably maybe, I think, uh, during the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, a couple of centuries or so before Jesus, where so much was written that's not considered scripture. It's in the Apocrypha in many cases. 
But anyway, it's a genre that was very familiar to the Jewish people. And so this, although it seems strange to us, would have appeared less so to them. Not that it was wide open, but it was not the total mystery that it appears to us. Luke's two-volume history, Luke and Acts, was compiled like a per or for a person that was called Theophilus, and we know he was called noble Theophilus, so he was some sort of probable probable Roman that had authority, and it was written. These books were written as an introduction to him. But yet we know that the book was really written not just for him, but for all people. Paul's letters were written to particular Christians living in Rome, Roman provinces, or during the Roman Empire, but we know that what he wrote to them was meant for us too. So how much more ought we to accept, read, and study the parts of the New Testament that are actually addressed to Christians in general, like this book. A little background. It's widely accepted with a few dissenters that John is the writer of Revelation. Solid historical tradition tells us that John lived to a ripe old age in the city of Ephesus which is one of the cities that these letters in Revelation was addressed to. Revelation was sent, again, to these seven cities. John was exiled to the island of Patmos, which is about 30 miles off the coast of what's called Turkey today. It was called Asia by the Romans. Why he was sent there, we're not told in particular. But this, was, this island was used as a place of banishment or exile by those in authority in these cities that were under the authority of Rome. And the reason we think he was probably sent there was because there was a growing practice of emperor worship that was taking place throughout the empire during the reign of Domitian, the, the Roman emperor. And it spread to these seven cities in a great manner. And so to dissent from this was a, uh, a matter of great consequences to a lot of the Christians. It either meant persecution in so many cases and the threat of martyrdom or death. Domitian, the emperor, was hungry for these divine honors for the emperor that, that were increasing. And so the persecutions increased. And they spread again to these churches. And John wrote to address these particular pressures. So it's possible that he was, that this was the reason for his exile. But persecution wasn't the only reason wasn't the only dangers that these churches faced. False prophets were growing in abundance. 
with their heretical teachings and that had to be overcome. And the churches were being contaminated by people that were trying to make the church more like the world, which, which included the morality or immorality that they brought. And so all of these things were factors that brought together persecution. Persecution and error and sin, the devil was at work. And he attacked from several different directions. It was a physical attack from a persecuted, persecuting emperor. It was an intellectual attack through the false cults that were proliferating at the time. And it was a moral attack through advocating for lowering Christian standards to be more like the world. Things haven't changed today because Satan's tactics haven't changed today. The church was under attack just as it is now. Words calling the church to be faithful and to be different from the world are going to fail. Unless we truly see Christians and the book of Revelation displaying in all of its glory. We can't be admonished to be something without seeing what that something is and taking it into our hearts. And this is what Revelation does. The first three chapters of the book read, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one, is he, who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. The first word, revelation, sets the stage for the book. It's from the Greek word apocalypsis, and it means uncovering of something that has been hidden. The making known of what we could not find out on our own. The revelation comes from the Father, here's the sequence, from the Father to the Son to an angel to the writer, John, and to the readers. And right away we get to a word that causes a lot of discussion and disagreement among Bible commentators, and the word is soon. And then in verse 3, for the time is near. So wider away, you're in a a battleground. And it's probably not wise to do a shortcut, but I'm going to do it anyway. Very briefly, there are four principal ways the book has been interpreted through the centuries. 
there's a preterist view. And the preterist view starts and ends with the situation of the church in the first century. It makes it meaningful to the people that lived at the time. And almost meaningless to everybody thereafter. Because if everything happened and finished then, then what are we looking at it now the way we do? It's, um, this is not fair to the preterist view because there's a lot more to it than that. But that's just a brief thing without going into 14 paragraphs, which everybody does on these things if you're reading the commentators. There's a historist view. And it sees the whole of history laid out and it strengthens faith to see it under everybody, to be able to see Revelation under the control of God. The weakness is that it makes it almost meaningless to the original people to whom it was written and largely to a good part of the world that's not Western Europe. So it's a difficult thing and so few people view the book through this view anymore. There's the futurist view, which is probably the predominant view today. But it almost exclusively excludes what's happening to the original people that it was written to and, it, and focuses entirely on the end of the age and eliminates everybody that's not part of that. So the, all of history almost. The idealist view sees the whole book is concerned with just ideas and principles, which has also largely been discarded. Perhaps the best view is a blending of the preterist and the future. <coughs> and that really makes sense when you look at how the prophets viewed what they were saying. And uh, we'll look at that in just a second. But again, the problem begins with the word soon. Soon refers to God's perspective and not ours. It's also been interpreted many times as suddenly. And this doesn't mean right away, but it means when it happens, it's going to be sudden. But right away, we're told the book is a prophecy, and we need to understand what prophecy means in Scripture. The prophets in the Old Testament had very little interest in chronology in time. And the future was always viewed as imminent, soon to take place. They blended the near and the distance like a painting that just flowed without any stoppage. Biblical prophecy is not primarily three-dimensional, but two-dimensional. It's got height, it's got width, but very little depth. It's very little concerned with time of future events. There's a tension between the immediate 
in the distant future. The biblical attitude can be seen in Mark. Take heed, watch, for you do not know when the time will come. And trying to be brief, let's look at 4 through 6. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the, of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and released us from our sins <coughs> by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and his who is to come, the Almighty. These are actual churches in the Roman province of Asia. Asia. Some have thought that these seven churches represent seven successive periods of church history, but there's very little hint of that in the book. These seven churches form sort of an irregular circle, and the thought is that perhaps they were major postal centers in Asia, so that when these letters went to one, they were automatically set read and then follow, set, sent to the next ones in this weird circle because this was a main road that covered these cities of importance within this area. And so they had a main road and a postal center in each of these seven cities. So this way it was a, meant to all of Christians, not just the ones in these cities, but in all the area, in all their outlying areas too. And if this is true, they could serve as distribution points, like I say, to all these surrounding areas. Revelation was for the entire church scattered throughout Asia. Who is and who was and is to come refers to God the Father and stresses his changelessness and eternity. From the seven spirits seems to mean <clears throat> from the Holy Spirit in his sevenfold fullness. And you see this again in chapter 3 verse 1 and chapter 4 verse 5 and 5, 6. And you see it also <clears throat> in the fourth chapter of Zechariah. This seems logical 
since the next phrase refers to God the Son. So this includes all three persons of the Godhead. It starts with God the Father, then the Holy Spirit, and then God the Son. This is the only time that you see this order, and I'm not quite sure. I didn't read any kind of satisfactory explanation. Usually it's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But here it's out of order. It's Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son. And again, I don't know why, which is only one of the things I don't know. Jesus is the faithful witness, and he calls us to be faithful as well. He's the firstborn from the dead by his resurrection and brought life to the children of God. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth, sovereign over all. And notice that from the Trinity is sent grace and power. It's not, he hasn't sent perplexity and a puzzle. He sent grace and power. And this is why I say if you read this and you get in your mind and you meditate on Jesus and what he says he is, who he says he is, and what he looks like, it helps to overcome a whole lot of pressures that you're going to and things you hear that are totally fictional. What we see from the middle of verses 5 through verse 8 is a doxology, a breaking into praise, a spontaneous outburst of praise and gratitude. And it's not the only doxology in Revelation. There are others. The first doxology is directed toward Christ, who loves us and has freed us from our sins. Loves us is a present tense. He didn't love us in the past, and he's going to love us in the future. He loves us now. He set us free by his death. He's made believers to be a kingdom priest to the Father. The return of Christ is going to be seen by all. In Daniel's vision of the four beasts, he saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. This is in Daniel 7.13. Zechariah (coughs) prophesied that in the day of the Lord, the inhabitants of Jerusalem would look on him whom they had pierced. And mourn for for him. Christ is coming in judgment, which is what this is talking about here. When he comes, his sovereignty is going to be openly revealed to all, for every eye shall see him. The ones who pierced him is not limited to the Roman soldier that pierced his side on the cross. It extends to every person in every age who is careless and indifferent to Jesus. 
they, they typify piercing his side, ignoring him, seeing him as of no importance. Only here in verse 8 and later in 21.6 does God himself speak. He's the Alpha and the Omega, meaning the first and the last, and including everything in between. He is therefore Lord of all that happens in human history. Before John is given his first vision, beginning in verse 9, he's given the reaffirmation of God's sovereign lordship over history. And the last verse is from 9 to 20 in Revelation. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice watch the sound of a trumpet saying write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and in Philadelphia and Laodicea then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me and having turned I saw seven golden lampstands And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. (coughs) His head and hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell down at his feet like a dead man. And And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. And the living one. And I was dead and behold I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore write the things which you have seen. And the things which are. And the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars. Which you saw in my right hand. And the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. John, of course, had been exiled to the island of Patmos. And again, apparently his preaching was making it difficult for the local authorities to instill emperor worship So they banished him. On the Lord's day, he received a commission to write down what he was about to see and send it to the seven churches in Asia. 
John identifies himself with his Christian <coughs> brothers and sisters on the mainland. He shares with them the suffering involved in faithfulness to Christ and the hope of a future kingdom of blessedness. The Lord's Day was the first day of the week. It's his day because he rose victorious over death. To be in the Spirit means to be caught up in meditation about the things of the Spirit. While in this state, John heard a loud voice giving him instructions to write what he had seen and send it to the seven churches. The churches are historic congregations, but they're also symbols of the strengths and weaknesses of churches throughout time. They do not represent seven periods of church history, which you get a lot. When John turns to see who has spoken to him, he sees one like the Son of Man. In the midst of seven golden lampstands, wearing priestly garments, and over and having, having an overpowering appearance. In his right hand, he holds seven stars, and a double-edged sword is in his mouth. It would seem to me to be important for us to imagine as best that we're able and to spend individual time pondering this image of the Lord. Because if we can begin to see it in our mind's eye of who Jesus was and is and the way he appeared to John, it won't be any of this. When I see Jesus, this is what I'm going to ask him. John fell on his face, and I can't imagine any of us that wouldn't do the same thing. It just helps us to store in our mind this image of Jesus. Hair, head and hair white as snow, eyes like a flame of fire, feet like burnished bronze and glowing from a heated furnace, and a voice like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, seven stars, and out of his mouth came a two-edged sword, face like that, like the sun, shining in full strength. It isn't any wonder that John fell down. Immediately, John was assured and told, don't be afraid. Jesus said, I'm the first and the last. A parallel meaning to the Alpha and the Omega. He's the living one who was dead and now is alive eternally. He has the keys of death and Hades, and Hades, meaning that he has complete control over the power to terrorize and enslave. And now John is told to write down the things that he has seen, the things that are and the things which will take place later. Then John is given understanding about the seven stars and the seven lampstands. 
The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The expression, the angel of the seven churches, is difficult. The simplest interpretation is to view angels as a guardian angel over each of the church. We see this concept in the book of Daniel where it seems like each country has a a guardian angel or some sort of an angel that's in charge or watches over them. This is the only place we know that, that we see it. But nevertheless, it seems difficult to imagine John told to write a letter to an angel. Angel literally means messenger. In the Old Testament, the term is applied to human as well as angelic messengers. So from early times, it's been common to interpret the angels of the churches as men of responsibility within the church, whether it's an elder, whether it's a bishop, whether it's a teacher. Regardless, the letter to the seven churches are being sent out, and they apply to all churches of all times. And next, the letters themselves, which we're not going to do now. I just find that the more I read something like this in slow motion, the more it means. Because if you read something like this, and then 10 minutes later someone would say, okay, I want you to write down four points that you got from this. So many people would be going, um, uh, let me think. Uh, but if you stop and read a sentence and, and meditate on it, especially on things like this, it really imprints itself in your heart. And you don't come away with a superficial view of who the Lord is. It, it makes all the difference to me personally. And I can't help but think that um, I'm not that different in this regard to anybody else. So, Jesus, I just thank you for your word. Your word is life because it's you, Lord. It's your written word from your mouth. And you call us, Lord, to read it, to understand it, not to see it as veiled, but to look at it and to see the unveiling, to see what you have have put forth so that we might not remain in darkness or in shadows but that the full light of the sun might shine on us so that in turn we could, to be that what you call us to be, a witness. So we just praise your name and give you thanks and ask for your hand to continue to be upon us for your glory. Amen.